And thanks so much for being here today. We are thrilled that you've joined us for worship. Uh, in fact, if this is your very first time, thanks so much for being with us. We hope you'll do us a couple of favors while you're here. Uh, the first one is take a moment to fill out this card. It's in the seat pocket in front of you. Just ask for some basic information on the back. And then after the service, if you stop by the information center, which is a table just uh, right behind in this room behind us, uh, then that'll give us a chance to give you a gift. And it's just our way of saying thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, we're thrilled that you're here. Uh, hey, we've been in a series over the past... Um, couple of weeks uh, on First and Second Timothy that we're calling Paul's Letters to Timothy. Uh, we took a little hiatus last week as Grace filled in to preach, and uh, my family and I joined or enjoyed just a week in the mountains, so it was great to be away, but it's also great to be back. So uh, thanks so much to Grace for filling in and doing a great job of bringing God's Word. Uh, you know, in the, as part of this series, I've been um, reminding us each and every week that uh, when we look at the, the letters that Paul wrote to churches um, that they are rooted in a particular context, that these are real letters sent to real people in history that are addressing real issues. And so part of our kind of interpretive responsibility, part of our goal is to try to reverse engineer the context. In other words, we can't, we can't know all, uh, everything exactly as it was happening, but we can take clues from the text and kind of other sources historically to try to build a picture or put together a picture of what the context was, was like. Uh, and that can then help us to, to kind of discern and determine how does this letter continue to speak to us today. So part of, the, um, part of the real power of the scriptures is its ability to be both rooted in a particular context and yet be timeless in how it speaks to us. And we've been learning that as we've kind of looked at the letters that Paul wrote uh, to his um, protege or his, his uh, companion in ministry, uh, Timothy. Uh, and so today's no different, and in fact, I want to remind us of that very strongly today, because we're, today we're going to look at um, what has, has historically been a pretty controversial po topic, and we're going to hit it right head on, okay? So who's ready? Yeah. That's right. Okay, let's do it. Yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous, but we're going to do fine. So, uh, so it's found in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning with verse 8, and I want to read through verse 15. Uh, it says this. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, as is true for uh, this series, we've been looking at the NRSV translation. So it says this, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lift, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument, and also that women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, and not with their hair braided or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good works as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided that, she continue, provided that they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. This is the word of God for the people of God. <laughs> Thanks be to God. <laughs> okay, so uh, this is fun. So Paul, Paul, has, <laughs> Paul has quite a bit to say uh, about women in this passage that is bound to make the skin of most women crawl and certainly some men in the room as well. 
Uh, so let's just, let's just again, let's, let's go over the list, okay? He says that women should dress modestly and refrain from adorning themselves with things like braided hair, gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, okay? In um, kind of in, in unhealthy religious culture, this has often been interpreted uh, as putting women in an impossible position of be attractive but not too much, right? And some of you maybe grew up in some of those unhealthy religious cultures that are like, uh, you know, you're not permitted to be unattractive, but you're also not permitted to be too much. And, and so as women, you're kind of expected to live in this middle ground, right? It can be very difficult, okay? So he also says that women must be silent in church. They're not to teach in the worship assembly, and they're to come under the authority of a man. And then to top it all off, Paul says that women are the daughter of Eve, who is the original troublemaker, right? Uh, but, but redemption can be found in childbearing. <laughs> so are, are, there any ladies, are there any ladies in the house that are just really angry at Paul at this point? I won't ask you to raise your hand. Okay, but, but my daughter is first to shoot her hand up. Okay, so let, let's just, it's like taken all together on the surface, this could be taken to mean that women are second-class citizens who would do well not to draw too much attention to themselves and get on with having children, right? That could be, that could be part of this. Like, if you just read this and, and kind of like on the surface, uh, then this, this could be like taken to mean that. Uh, and certainly, many well-meaning Christians do just that. Like, they, this is where they're at, Okay. Uh, and what we want to do, again, is we want to try to seek to understand the scriptures. In fact, in most of Western culture over the past several decades, there is sort of this assumed narrative, these assumed gender narratives about how men and women behave. Okay? So like in Western culture, broadly speaking, there's these kind of gender narratives about how men and women behave. Men are the macho thugs who can fix anything with their fist, Right? Uh, while, while women are often these emotional darlings who have little to worry about in life except clothes and hairstyles, okay? And, and right, I mean, this is like generally speaking, a lot of times the narrative that we receive is exactly that. Oh, you can't cry, be a man, you know? If, if you fix this, just punch him in the face and fix it, okay? Uh, and so there's sort of this, these, these kind of, these generic narratives in Western culture. Uh, and then this text, <laughs> this text, this passage in particular, has kind of become the classic proof text for a Christianized version of that narrative, uh, which is to say that men are the, people, are the ones who are in charge, they make all the decisions, they worry about the real stuff of life while women have children and make sure dinner is ready. Okay, and, and a lot of times there's Christian teaching that is kind of centered on that. Maybe we skirt around it a little bit, but it's kind of like, uh, you know, look good but not too good. Uh, Provide for your man by having dinner ready, and then, then everything will be fine, okay? Uh, and so let's try to unpack this a little bit, uh, because we have to really ask, does the Apostle Paul and the Bible in, as a whole, does it really think about women in this way? Um, that's a key question. And so here's what I've often said. I will say it again just to remind us. Uh, the Bible is an ancient text and therefore must be interpreted. So it simply will not do to say the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it, okay? That's a really bad hermeneutic when it comes to Scripture. <laughs> um, hermeneutic being a fancy word for the lens by which we interpret and understand Scripture. Uh, and, and so if our hermeneutic is, Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it, that's a really bad kind of way of approaching Scripture and seeking to understand. 
So we, might, we have to ask like really key and critical questions. And one of those is this. Uh, are the things that Paul says about women in this passage intended as principles for all churches and all women for all time? Or is there a specific context uh, in, in which Paul is giving this uh, instruction? Is there a specific context that's kind of driving these very specific instructions for women in this? Uh, now, to help us tackle that question and help us kind of discern what Paul might be saying here, uh, I want to offer two possible frameworks for discernment. Uh, and here's what I mean. So, so hermeneutic, can we like enter the classroom for a little bit? Is that okay with you guys? So a hermeneutic is kind of the lens by which we seek to interpret scripture. Uh, and that's how we kind of take the scripture and we begin to pull meaning out of it. Okay, that's called a hermeneutic. Uh, distinct from that is what I'm calling like a framework for discernment, uh, which is often like what faculties are available to us when we go to discern truth. Okay, what faculties or what resources are available to us in order to discern truth? Uh, and I want to offer you kind of two uh, that, I, that are often popular or talked about. Okay, so what I mean by framework of discernment is what resources are available to us in order to discern truth. The first framework that I want to mention is that uh, that is historically known as sola scriptura, uh, which quite literally means scripture alone. Now, this framework of discernment operates under the conviction that the only thing we need to determine truth is the Bible itself, okay? The only thing we need to determine truth is the Bible itself, which is to say that all the answers to all of life's most pressing and difficult questions are found in the scriptures if you will just look close enough, okay? That's sola scriptura. Uh, and this sounds very, 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 very spiritual, right? It sounds just like, how, how can you argue with that? because uh, it sounds so spiritual. Uh, but the truth is, is it kind of limits our faculties that we can use in order to discern truth. Um, and so further, when we make the claim that we are using scripture alone to discern truth, it really tends to discourage any questions that can sometimes come up, and, and so it tends to lead to a kind of a surface leading of the reading of the text. In other words, when you have this conviction or this discernment for uh, this, this framework for discernment of sola scriptura, it tends to discourage any questions about the text, which then leads to, well, the, that's what the Bible says, and so that's how it must be, right? It kind of moves us away from the interpretive work of Scripture. Are you with me? Uh, okay, some of you are loving this, some of you are hating this. Stick with me till the end, okay? And, and, and let's see where we land together. All right, but let's say... Let's, let's use Scripture alone for discernment in trying to figure out what Paul might be saying in this text. Because even then, even if we use the, the framework for discernment of Scripture alone, I think what we end up with is we see that throughout Scripture, women play a key role uh, in the proclamation of the gospel, in the spreading of the gospel. And when we read and understand Scripture in its context, we see that Scripture regularly pushes the envelope to dismantle sort of a strict patriarchy that is present in the ancient world, right? So, so even if we use that framework for discernment, we still find that I think something else is going on here. So for example, as early as Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, uh, it says that God made a suitable, suitable helper for Adam. A suitable, suitable helper for Adam. And, and a lot of folks have said, okay, this means that sort of like male is primary, female is 
uh, is, is secondary, right? Like male is Batman, uh, all females are Robin, right? Like, so, so like every good superhero male needs a sidekick uh, female, right? So, so sometimes it can be understood that way, but, but check this out. This will blow you away. The Hebrew phrase that we, interp- that, that we interpret in English as suitable helper is the Hebrew phrase Azer Kenegdo, and, the, and quite literally what Azer Kenegdo means is God created an equal strength facing Adam. <laughs> right? And all the ladies were like, amen, you know? <laughs> right? So you kind of have like, so as early as Genesis, you get, yes, there, there's a distinction between the genders, but there's an equal strength. So, so, what, so God created an equal strength who was facing Adam. Uh, and, and so very early on, even in the creation story itself, the scripture is trying to uphold the strength of women. Women are recorded in all four Gospels as the first witnesses to the resurrection. You would not be a believer in Jesus Christ today were it not for those women. Okay? Which, by the way, uh, early in the first century, when rumors of resurrection were kind of circling around and everyone was trying to figure out, is this actually the case? Did Jesus actually physically raise from the dead? Uh, and a lot of people, a lot of naysayers were saying, no, uh, like the Hebrew people, they just made this up because they need a better narrative of their Messiah died, right? They need a better narrative, and so they just kind of made up the story of resurrection. Uh, but historically, you would never make up a story and put women as the first witnesses of, of the key part of your story, okay? You would never do that. So the fact that women in all four Gospels are recorded as the first witnesses to resurrection gives historical credibility to the actual physical uh, resurrection of Jesus. Are you with me? Does that make sense? So if you were making up a story, you would never place women as the first witnesses. You would never do that, not in this culture. And And yet, here we have all four Gospels. Women are the first witnesses to resurrection. And then actually, Paul himself, Paul himself speaks of women as apostles and deacons in Romans 16. In Romans 16, as he's closing out his letter, he names women by name and calls them apostles and deacons and thanks them for their work in the spreading and the proclamation of the gospel and the good news. Okay? And then Paul himself in Corinthians expects women to participate in worship through prayer and prophecy. And then Paul himself tells the church in Galatians that gender divisions have ended in Christ along with social status, race, and others. And then Mary, and, uh, Mary of Bethany sits at the feet of Jesus in Luke chapter 10, which is a, and sitting at the feet of Jesus is a clear sign of her being a fellow disciple with the men, of learning at the feet of Jesus in order to follow the way of Jesus. Jesus, okay? So even if you take Sola Scriptura as a framework for discernment, it's clear that something else is going on in this passage because it simply doesn't jive with the rest of Paul's writings or the rest of Scripture as a whole. Side note, this, by the way, is is why uh, this is a great example of the dangers of narrowly focusing on a single passage or a single verse without kind of the rest of the scriptural witness providing some discernment and providing voice, okay? This is why the the Bible, I want you to hear this, this is why the Bible must be allowed to be in conversation with itself. You with me? Okay? Uh, I I heard um, this week or in the last couple weeks, and I don't remember uh, who has said it, but it was... Uh, I thought it was really wise, and that is uh, no preacher should ever just preach from one single passage of Scripture, <laughs> but rather we should always kind of have in mind the whole witness of Scripture. Uh, 
Uh, what is scripture as a whole moving us toward and, and pointing us toward? So something else is going on. And so, so one framework of discernment, sola scriptura, which itself is limiting in how we discern truth, but I think even if we take that, We've got to say something else is going on. But the second framework of discernment that I want to offer you, which I feel like is far healthier, um, is called Wesley's quadrilateral. Okay? And I said we'll, we'll do a little bit of classroom stuff here. So Wesley's quadrilateral, uh, which is a hard word to say when your mouth is real dry. Um, so I'm going to do my best. But, but here, so John Wesley had, had like these four faculties for discernment that he identified that we can use when we're seeking to discern truth. And the four are listed in your notes in your bulletin insert, uh, but, but you can also uh, write them down if you want to do that. Uh, it's scripture, okay? So scripture is still a key player, right, in how we discern truth. But there's scripture and then reason, tradition, and experience. Okay, scripture, reason, tradition, and experience as kind of faculties or resources that we can pull from in order to discern truth. Now, this is an absolutely true story. Uh, I was at a birthday party, uh, and uh, I sat down, and this guy found out I was a pastor, and he started just kind of unloading uh, a whole story of his kind of faith deconstruction, which is a famous, like, real well-known term now. And he was like, I just have all these questions, and I don't know about all this stuff. And, and I was like, you know, this is pro- I'm more comfortable having this kind of conversation with one person than I am in a birthday party social environment. So I was happy for the conversation. Uh, so so, so we're, I'm at this birthday party, and, and he starts unloading all of this stuff, and, and, he's, and he was working with a, frame, with, with a frame of mind that said, Scripture itself is so contradictory all the time. And so how can we know truth at all? And I got to tell this guy at a birthday party about Wesley's quadrilateral, and it blew his mind. It changed everything for him. He was like, wait, I can employ other faculties when discerning truth. And I said, absolutely, right? Scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. So with this framework, these four faculties work together to help us discern truth. And so when we read and look at Scripture, we're actually allowed to ask questions and ask questions like, Is this reasonable? Is this logical? Does this make sense, right? That's a pretty good question. Or or we can ask this, is this true to my experience and the experience of the community, right? So you kind of like, when under Wesley's Wesley's quadrilateral, you're allowed to say, is this true to my own experience? And is this true to the experience, broadly speaking, of the community? Uh, And then we can also say, what have brothers and sisters in the past said about this, right? That we can pull from the kind of collective wisdom of the church over time in order to help us discern truth. Uh, Now, the key point here is past is not what did someone tweet about this last week, right? (laughs) But rather pulling from the past is what has been the movement of the people of God and how they have felt about this particular subject or whatever throughout history. And you'll find that often uh, the people of God kind of move this way. Oh, we've gone too far that way. Let's move this way. Now we went too far that way. And you kind of see throughout history that there's this, there's this wide range of, in, of interpretation on a whole, whole number of subjects. Uh, and how that works. And I, I, so I think that's really helpful. So let, let's employ then Wesley's quadrilateral to this passage. Uh, if Paul is really saying that women shouldn't be able to teach in the worship assembly, is that reasonable? Is it reasonable to believe that God would exempt half of the population 
from ministry in his name? I don't think so. <laughs> right? That God would just sort of exempt half of the population uh, from, from teaching in the assembly of the people of God. Uh, and then experience. Experience shows us, uh, and I hope to get some amens here, uh, experience shows us that women are capable and strong leaders, communicators, organizers, artists, activists, and the list could go on and on. Amen. There we go. Good. <laughs> That's right. And then tradition. Tradition, including the earliest traditions given to us in Scripture, shows us that women have always played a key role in the proclamation of the gospel. And so I believe with conviction that Paul is not saying here that women should just be silent and take their place. Uh, but that, that raises another really key and important question. If Paul isn't saying that, then what is he saying, right? Then what is he saying? Because as soon as I read this in the assembly together, you all laughed, which was, an, which was like not the reaction I was expecting. Uh, but everyone was like, yeah, yeah, right, Paul, okay? So, <laughs> which is an okay thing, right? Uh, but, but here it is. So, so what is Paul saying? Again, context, context, context. Okay, so regarding clothing. Once you decide that Paul is not classifying women as second-class citizens, then you must seek to understand what Paul is saying, particularly regarding his prohibition of clothing. Uh, and there are a couple schools of thought here, a couple schools of thought. Uh, the first is this. There's evidence that expensive clothes, gold, fancy hairdos, which I guess back then was braiding your hair, okay? Uh, fancy hairdos and the like were worn by rich Roman women as signs of social status. And remember, this is, this is located in a community, Ephesus. Ephesus is occupied or ruled by Rome. And so this is a group of Hebrew Christians trying to figure out what it means to be the people of God under a Roman-occupied city, okay? And so there were some Roman women who had become Christians and were coming to the assembly, kind of showing off their social status uh, through this expensive clothing and things like that. In other words, they were treating the Sunday gathering like a fashion show in order to show off their own status and therefore kind of shaming everyone who couldn't afford such splendor. So Paul then, desiring that there be no division in the body of Christ, encourages these Ephesian women to refrain from wearing that kind of clothing to the assembly. Okay, that's the first school of thought. The second school of thought, or another way of thinking about this, is that Paul is trying to set women free from the typical stereotype that women are only concerned with style. Okay? So, so again, there, there, even there, this early in history, there appears to be some evidence that these kind of gender narratives of, of men who are argumentative and kind of macho and, and women are valuable based on only what they wear. And so, so he says to the men, I want you to be praying, but I want you to pray without arguing, right? I want you to pray without sort of asserting your macho-ness, okay? So he's, so he's also kind of addressing the stereotype for men. And then he says to women, set yourself free from the stereotypes that all you have to worry about life are, are clothes and hairdos by kind of refraining from, from kind of doing yourself up in that way uh, in the worship assembly, okay? So there's a couple schools of thoughts, and I, I think both of them uh, have some credibility. So, so that's why the, the prohibition there on, on what to wear. Now regarding teaching, uh, which also, uh, let's see, 
Okay, so then the, the part about the stereotype is this. Once they're set free from that kind of typical stereotype, then they are free to pursue learning, okay? Which leads us then to what does Paul say about teaching and learning? Uh, an important part of the message that Paul wants to give is actually easy to miss, given everything else that's going on, right? You can kind of gloss over this when, while in, your, in your frustration with Paul's words here. Uh, but what he says, he says quite clearly that women should be allowed to study in full submission. Uh, now, the wording here trips us up a bit because we assume that it means inside, we assume that when it says in silence and in full submission, that it is women are supposed to sit and listen to the teaching of a man. Uh, but it actually doesn't say that in verse 11. It could just as easily say that, he, that they are to sit, that women are to sit and listen in full submission to God in the same way that men are to, right? In fact, one translation says it this way, they must be allowed to study undisturbed in full submission to God, is one translation of that verse in verse 11. So what Paul is actually stating is that women are to be learners, are to be disciples in the same way. Uh, that men are to do that in full submission to God. And so Paul's general conviction is that women, just like men, must be allowed to learn and to develop gifts God has given them so that they can participate in the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, then why does he go on to say that women must be under the authority of a man? Well, again, context, context, context. Because the largest temple in Ephesus was the temple of Artemis. Artemis is, in fact, uh, what Artem, the, Artemis was the goddess over a female-only cult in which women kept, kept men in their place, okay? In which uh, women kept men in their place. So if you, were sitting with a, if you were writing to a group of people in Ephesus and telling them that because of the work of Jesus Christ, all the ways in which we have organized male and female roles have now been rethought you might as well avoid the opposite error or the opposite misunderstanding that we're not trying to just recreate an Artemis-type cult, right? That we're not trying to just say women ought to rule over men, but nor are we saying men ought to rule over women, but rather what Paul is saying is that men and women alike should be allowed to pursue the way of Jesus together. Are you with me? Okay, does that make sense? So uh, here's this. Uh, the good N.T. Wright says this. Women must have the space and leisure to study and learn in their own way, not in order that they may muscle in and take over leadership, as in the Artemis cult, but so that men and women alike can develop whatever gifts of learning, teaching, and leadership God is giving them. Amen. 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 Now, then, this little comment about Adam and Eve, <laughs> which is like the real stinger at the end, you know? <laughs> Just like, whoa, you know? So, so here's what, here's, let's unpack this. He is not saying that a woman's redemption is her ability to give birth. Okay, because that would mean that, that, your, you ha that your life as a woman has to fit into a really narrow kind of narrative, right? And, and we know uh, from life that there's a lot of people who don't fit into that narrative. Okay, and, and so... He's not saying that a woman's redemption from like the Eve debacle is her ability to give childbirth. Rather, what he's saying is that through the woman's ability to give birth, salvation entered into the world in Jesus Christ. 
that it was, it was the ability for the woman to give birth. So he's not trying to put every woman into a particular narrow narrative, but rather he's saying that through this gift of childbearing, salvation entered the world in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, and so, again, I think, um, I think Eugene Peterson and how he kind of renders this passage in the message is really helpful. He says this, since prayer is at the bottom of all of this, what I, want, uh, what I mo- want mostly is for men to pray, not shaking angry fists at enemies, but raising holy hands to God. And I want women to get in there with the men in humility before God, not primping before a mirror or chasing the latest fashions, but doing something beautiful for God and becoming beautiful doing it. And I don't let... I don't let women take over and tell the men what to do, for they should study and be quiet and obedient along with everyone else. Adam was made first, then Eve. Woman was deceived first, our pioneer in sin, with Adam right on her heels. On the other hand, her childbearing brought about salvation, reversing Eve. But this salvation only comes to those who continue in faith, love, and holiness and gathering it all up into maturity, you can depend on this. I think that's a beautiful kind of rewording uh, or way of putting the truths that are in this passage that at least on the surface seem, seem really, really uh, kind of difficult to swallow, right? So uh, isn't it good that we can kind of be honest and tackle this kind of stuff, right? G- give me some encouragement. <laughs> Uh, I'm always like, oh, should we do that? Yeah, we probably should. Uh, and so, so actually, here's, here's like one of my really practical encouragements to you then. In light of what we've learned uh, out of 1 Timothy, um, here's my encouragement. Find a woman, a female in your life and empower her today. Uh, let her voice be heard. Let her skills be used uh, for the glory of God. Uh, and let her thrive uh, as the person that God has created her to be. Amen? Amen. Well, let's say a word of prayer, and I will lead us to the Lord's table today. Heavenly Father, um, we're thankful for the scriptures and how they allow us to be transported into a world that is not our own. And yet, in so many ways, it is a world similar to ours, and it is a world in which we can learn from. And so, Lord, as I've done my best to provide good uh, scholarship to this passage of Scripture that, on the surface, can be really difficult, um, I I pray, God, that you would uh, use it in our lives and in our hearts uh, to form us and shape us as your people. Um, And God, today, as a faith community, we recognize um, the gifts, the talents, uh, the abilities, the faculties that you provide your people, men and women alike, uh, for the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we seek to to lean into those uh, realities and those truths, uh, we pray that you would just be with us, uh, that you would lead us and guide us, that you would give us good discernment, Um, of what it means to be your people in this time and in this place. 
And God, as we gather around the table today, I, I pray that you would bring unity to this body. For God, we recognize um, that the table of, of Christ uh, is a table in which uh, we can all come and receive your blessing, receive your presence, to not only remember the death and passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, but to look forward to the day when all things will be made new and we can live in new creation. That God, I'm, I'm captured by the words of the song that we sang earlier, How Can We Keep From Singing? That there is in the distance a far off hymn that hails a new creation. And so God, may our hearts and may our ears be tuned to the melody of new creation in the world. And we know that there's oftentimes a lot to work out when we think about that or when we look at that. And so God, help us to work that out and help us to be people who are seeking and discerning of your truth as we explore the scriptures and as we um, depend on your spirit. So God, be with us in these moments and meet us at the table, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.